Section 46 of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 8. The Protection of the President, Part 2. Information known about Lee Harvey Oswald prior to the assassination. No information concerning Lee Harvey Oswald appeared in PRS files before the President's trip to Dallas. Oswald was known to other federal agencies with which the Secret Service maintained intelligence liaison. The FBI had been interested in him, to some degree at least, since the time of his defection in October 1959. It had interviewed him twice shortly after his return to the United States, again a year later at his request, and was investigating him at the time of the assassination. The Commission has taken the testimony of Bureau agents, who interviewed Oswald after his return from the Soviet Union and prior to November 22, 1963, the agent who was assigned his case at the time of the assassination, the director of the FBI, and the assistant to the director in charge of all investigative activities under the director and associate director. In addition, the director and deputy director for plans of the CIA testified concerning that agency's limited knowledge of Oswald before the assassination. Finally, the Commission has reviewed the complete files on Oswald, as they existed at the time of the assassination, of the Department of State, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the FBI, and the CIA. The information known to the FBI is summarized below. From Defection to Return to Fort Worth The FBI opened a file on Oswald in October 1959, when news reports appeared of his defection to the Soviet Union. The file was opened, quote, for the purpose of correlating information inasmuch as he was considered a possible security risk in the event he returned to this country, end quote. Oswald's defection was also the occasion for the opening of files by the Department of State, CIA, and the Office of Naval Intelligence. Until April 1960, FBI activity consisted of placing in Oswald's file information regarding his relations with the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and background data relating largely to his prior military service provided by other agencies. In April 1960, Mrs. Marguerite Oswald and Robert Oswald were interviewed in the course of a routine FBI investigation of transfers of small sums of money from Mrs. Oswald to her son in Russia. During the next two years, the FBI continued to accumulate information and kept itself informed on Oswald's status by periodic reviews of State Department and Office of Naval Intelligence files. In this way, it learned that when Oswald had arrived in the Soviet Union, he had attempted to renounce his U.S. citizenship and applied for Soviet citizenship had described himself as a Marxist, had said he would give the Soviet Union any useful information he had acquired as a marine radar technician 
and had displayed an arrogant and aggressive attitude at the U.S. Embassy. It learned also that Oswald had been discharged from the Marine Corps Reserve as undesirable in August 1960. In June 1962, the Bureau was advised by the Department of State of Oswald's plan to return to the United States. The Bureau made arrangements to be advised by immigration authorities of his return and instructed the Dallas office to interview him when he got back to determine whether he had been recruited by a Soviet intelligence service. Oswald's file at the Department of State Passport Office was reviewed in June 1962. It revealed his letter of January 30, 1962, to Secretary of the Navy Connolly, in which he protested his discharge and declared that he would use, quote, all means, end quote, to correct it. The file reflected the Department's determination that Oswald had not expatriated himself. From return to Fort Worth to move to New Orleans. Oswald was first interviewed by FBI agents John W. Fain and B. Tom Carter on June 26, 1962, in Fort Worth. Agent Fain reported to headquarters that Oswald was impatient and arrogant and unwilling to answer questions regarding his motive for going to the Soviet Union. Oswald, quote, denied that he had ever denounced his U.S. citizenship and that he had ever applied for Soviet citizenship specifically, end quote. Oswald was, however, willing to discuss his contacts with Soviet authorities. He denied having any involvement with Soviet intelligence agencies and promised to advise the FBI if he heard from them. Agent Fain was not satisfied by this interview and arranged to see Oswald again on August 16, 1962. According to Fain's contemporaneous memorandum and his present recollection, while Oswald remained somewhat evasive at this interview, he was not antagonistic and seemed generally to be settling down. Marina Oswald, however, recalled that her husband was upset by this interview. Oswald again agreed to advise the FBI if he were approached under suspicious circumstances. However, he deprecated the possibility of this happening, particularly since his employment did not involve any sensitive information. Having concluded that Oswald was not a security risk or potentially dangerous or violent, Fain determined that nothing further remained to be done at that time, and recommended that the case be placed in a closed status. This is an administrative classification indicating that no further work has been scheduled. It does not preclude the agent in charge of the case from reopening it if he feels that further work should be done. From August 1962 until March 1963, the FBI continued to accumulate information regarding Oswald but engaged in no active investigation. Agent Fain retired from the FBI in October 1962, and the closed Oswald case was not reassigned. However, pursuant to a regular bureau practice of interviewing certain immigrants from Iron Curtain countries, Fain had been assigned to see Marina Oswald at an appropriate time. This assignment was given to Agent James P. Hostie, Jr., of the Dallas office, upon Fain's retirement. 
In March 1963, while attempting to locate Marina Oswald, Agent Hostie was told by Mrs. M. F. Tobias, a former landlady of the Oswalds, at 602 Elsbeth Street in Dallas, that other tenants had complained because Oswald was drinking to excess and beating his wife. This information led Hostie to review Oswald's file, from which he learned that Oswald had become a subscriber to The Worker, a Communist Party publication. Hostie decided that the Lee Harvey Oswald case should be reopened because of the alleged personal difficulties and the contact with The Worker, and his recommendation was accepted. He decided, however, not to interview Marina Oswald at that time, and merely determined that the Oswalds were living at 214 Neely Street in Dallas. On April 21, 1963, the FBI field office in New York was advised that Oswald was in contact with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New York, and that he had written to the committee, stating that he had distributed its pamphlets on the streets of Dallas. This information did not reach Agent Hostie in Dallas until June. Hostie considered the information to be, quote, stale, unquote, by that time, and did not attempt to verify Oswald's reported statement. Under a General Bureau request to be on the alert for activities of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, Hostie had inquired earlier and found no evidence that it was functioning in the Dallas area. In New Orleans, in the middle of May of 1963, Agent Hostie checked Oswald's last known residence and found that he had moved. Oswald was tentatively located in New Orleans in June, and Hostie asked the New Orleans FBI office to determine Oswald's address and what he was doing. The New Orleans office investigated and located Oswald, learning his address and former place of employment on August 5, 1963. A confidential informant advised the FBI that Oswald was not known to be engaged in Communist Party activities in New Orleans. On June 24, Oswald applied in New Orleans for a passport, stating that he planned to depart by ship for an extended tour of Western European countries, the Soviet Union, Finland, and Poland. The passport office of the Department of State in Washington had no listing for Oswald requiring special treatment, and his application was approved on the following day. The FBI had not asked to be informed of any effort by Oswald to obtain a passport, as it might have under existing procedures, and did not know of his application. According to the Bureau, quote, We did not request the State Department to include Oswald on a list which would have resulted in advising us of any application for a passport, inasmuch as the facts relating to Oswald's activities at that time did not warrant such action. Our investigation of Oswald had disclosed no evidence that Oswald was acting under the instructions or on behalf of any foreign government or instrumentality thereof. End quote. On August 9, 1963, Oswald was arrested and jailed by the New Orleans Police Department for disturbing the peace in connection with a street fight which broke out when he was accosted by anti-Castro Cubans while distributing leaflets on behalf of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. On the next day, 
he asked the New Orleans police to arrange for him to be interviewed by the FBI. The police called the local FBI office, and an agent, John L. Quigley, was sent to the police station. Agent Quigley did not know of Oswald's prior FBI record when he interviewed him, inasmuch as the police had not given Oswald's name to the Bureau when they called the office. Quigley recalled that Oswald was receptive when questioned about his general background, but less than completely truthful or cooperative when interrogated about the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Quigley testified, quote, when I began asking him specific details with respect to his activities in the Fair Play for Cuba committee in New Orleans, as to where meetings were held, who was involved, what occurred, he was reticent to furnish information, reluctant, and actually, as far as I was concerned, was completely evasive on them. End quote. In Quigley's judgment, Oswald quote, was probably making a self serving statement in attempting to explain to me why he was distributing this literature, and for no other reason. And when I got to questioning him further, then he felt that his purpose had been served, and he wouldn't say anything further, end quote. During the interview, Quigley obtained background information from Oswald, which was inconsistent with information already in the Bureau's possession. When Quigley returned to his office, he learned that another Bureau agent, Milton R. Knack, had been conducting a background investigation of Oswald at the request of Agent Hostie in Dallas. Quigley advised Knack of his interview and gave him a detailed memorandum. Knack was aware of the facts known to the FBI and recognized Oswald's false statements. For example, Oswald claimed that his wife's maiden name was Prosa and that they had been married in Fort Worth and lived there until coming to New Orleans. He had told the New Orleans arresting officers that he had been born in Cuba. Several days later, the Bureau received additional evidence that Oswald had lied to Agent Quigley. On August 22, it learned that Oswald had appeared on a radio discussion program on August 21. William Stuckey, who had appeared on the radio program with Oswald, told the Bureau on August 30 that Oswald had told him that he had worked and been married in the Soviet Union. Neither these discrepancies nor the fact that Oswald had initiated the FBI interview was considered sufficiently unusual to necessitate another interview. Alan H. Belmont, assistant to the director of the FBI, stated the Bureau's reasoning in this way, quote, Our interest in this man at this point was to determine whether his activities constituted a threat to the internal security of the country. It was apparent that he had made a self-serving statement to Agent Quigley. It became a matter of record in our files as a part of the case, and if we determined that the course of the investigation required us to clarify or face him down with this information, we would do it at the appropriate time. In other words, he committed no violation of the law by telling us something that wasn't true and unless this required further investigation at that time, we would handle it in due course, in accord with the whole context of the investigation." End quote. On August 21, 1963, Bureau headquarters instructed the New Orleans and Dallas field offices to conduct an additional investigation of Oswald in view of the activities which had led to his arrest. FBI informants in the New Orleans area 
familiar with pro-Castro or Communist Party activity there, advised the Bureau that Oswald was unknown in such circles. In Dallas In early September 1963, the FBI transferred the principal responsibility for the Oswald case from the Dallas office to the New Orleans office. Soon after, on October 1, 1963, the FBI was advised by the rental agent for the Oswalds' apartment in New Orleans that they had moved again. According to the information received by the Bureau, they had vacated their apartment, and Marina Oswald had departed with their child in a station wagon with Texas registration. On October 3, Hostie reopened the case in Dallas to assist the New Orleans office. He checked in Oswald's old neighborhood and throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but was unable to locate Oswald. The next word about Oswald's location was a communication from the CIA to the FBI on October 10, advising that an individual tentatively identified as Oswald had been in touch with the Soviet embassy in Mexico City in early October of 1963. The Bureau had no earlier information suggesting that Oswald had left the United States. The possible contact with the Soviet embassy in Mexico intensified the FBI's interest in learning Oswald's whereabouts. The FBI representative in Mexico City arranged to follow up this information with the CIA and to verify Oswald's entry into Mexico. The CIA message was sent also to the Department of State, where it was reviewed by personnel of the passport office, who knew from Oswald's file that he had sought and obtained a passport on June 25, 1963. The Department of State did not advise either the CIA or the FBI of these facts. On October 25, the New Orleans office of the FBI learned that in September Oswald had given a forwarding address of 2515 West 5th Street, Irving, Texas. After receiving this information on October 29, Agent Hostie attempted to locate Oswald. On the same day, Hostie interviewed neighbors on 5th Street and learned that the address was that of Mrs. Ruth Payne. He conducted a limited background investigation of the Paynes, intending to interview Mrs. Payne and ask her particularly about Oswald's whereabouts. Having determined that Mrs. Payne was a responsible and reliable citizen, Hostie interviewed her on November 1. The interview lasted about 20 to 25 minutes. In response to Hostie's inquiries, Mrs. Payne, quote, readily admitted that Mrs. Marina Oswald and Lee Oswald's two children were staying with her. She said that Lee Oswald was living somewhere in Dallas she didn't know where. She said it was in the Oak Cliff area, but she didn't have his address. I asked her if she knew where he worked. After a moment's hesitation, she told me that he worked at the Texas School Book Depository near the downtown area of Dallas. She didn't have the exact address, and it is my recollection that we went to the phone book and looked it up, found it to be 411 Elm Street, end quote. Mrs. Payne told Hostie also that Oswald was living alone in Dallas because she did not want him staying at her house, although she was willing to let Oswald visit his wife and children. According to Hostie, 
Mrs. Payne indicated that she thought she could find out where Oswald was living and would let him know. At this point in the interview, Hostie gave Mrs. Payne his name and office telephone number on a piece of paper. At the end of the interview, Marina Oswald came into the room. When he observed that she seemed, quote, quite alarmed, end quote, about the visit, Hostie assured her, through Mrs. Payne as interpreter, that the FBI would not harm or harass her. On November 4, Hostie telephoned the Texas School Book Depository and learned that Oswald was working there and that he had given as his address Mrs. Payne's residence in Irving. Hostie took the necessary steps to have the Dallas office of the FBI rather than the New Orleans office re-established as the office with principal responsibility. On November 5, Hostie was traveling near Mrs. Payne's home and took the occasion to stop by to ask whether she had any further information. Mrs. Payne had nothing to add to what she had already told him, except that, during a visit that past weekend, Oswald had said that he was a, quote, Trotskyite communist, end quote, and that she found this and similar statements illogical and somewhat amusing. On this occasion, Hostie was at the Payne residence for only a few minutes. During neither interview did Hostie learn Oswald's address or telephone number in Dallas. Mrs. Payne testified that she learned Oswald's telephone number at the Beckley Street rooming house in the middle of October, shortly after Oswald rented the room on October 14. As discussed in Chapter 6, she failed to report this to Agent Hostie because she thought the FBI was in possession of a great deal of information and certainly would find it very easy to learn where Oswald was living. Hostie did nothing further in connection with the Oswald case until after the assassination. On November 1, 1963, he had received a copy of the report of the New Orleans office, which contained Agent Quigley's memorandum of the interview in the New Orleans jail on August 10, and realized immediately that Oswald had given false biographic information. Hostie knew that he would eventually have to investigate this and, quote, was quite interested in determining the nature of his contact with the Soviet embassy in Mexico City, end quote. When asked what his next step would have been, Hostie replied, quote, Well, as I had previously stated, I have between 25 and 40 cases assigned to me at any one time. I had other matters to take care of. I had now established that Lee Oswald was not employed in a sensitive industry. I can now afford to wait until New Orleans forwarded the necessary papers to me to show me I now had all the information. It was then my plan to interview Marina Oswald in detail concerning both herself and her husband's background. Question. Had you planned any steps beyond that point? Answer. No. I would have to wait until I had talked to Marina to see what I could determine and from there I could make my plans. Question. Did you take any action on this case between November 5 and November 22? Answer. No, sir. The official bureau files confirm Hostie's statement that from November 5 until the assassination, no active investigation was conducted. On November 18, the FBI learned that Oswald recently had been in communication with the Soviet embassy in Washington and so advised the Dallas office in the ordinary course of business. 
Postie received this information on the afternoon of November 22, 1963. Non-referral of Oswald to the Secret Service The Commission has considered carefully the question whether the FBI, in view of all the information concerning Oswald in its files, should have alerted the Secret Service to Oswald's presence in Dallas prior to President Kennedy's visit. The Secret Service and the FBI differ as to whether Oswald fell within the category of, quote, threats against the president, end quote, which should be referred to the service. Robert I. Book, special agent in charge of the Protective Research Section, testified that the information available to the federal government about Oswald before the assassination would, if known to PRS, have made Oswald a subject of concern to the Secret Service. Book pointed to a number of characteristics besides Oswald's defection, the cumulative effect of which would have been to alert the Secret Service to potential danger. Quote, I would think his continued association with the Russian embassy after his return, his association with the Castro groups would have been of concern to us, a knowledge that he had, I believe, been court-martialed for illegal possession of a gun, of a handgun in the Marines, that he had owned a weapon and did a good deal of hunting or use of it, perhaps in Russia, plus a number of items about his disposition and unreliability of character. I think all of those, if we had them all together, would have added up to pointing out a pretty bad individual, and I think that together, had we known that he had a vantage point, would have seemed somewhat serious to us, even though I must admit that none of these in themselves would be, would meet our specific criteria, none of them alone. But it is when you begin adding them up to some degree that you begin to get criteria that are meaningful. End quote. Mr. Book pointed out, however, that he had no reason to believe that any one federal agency had access to all this information, including the significant fact that Oswald was employed in a building which overlooked the motorcade route. Agent Hostie testified that he was fully aware of the pending presidential visit to Dallas. He recalled that the special agent in charge of the Dallas office of the FBI, J. Gordon Shanklin, had discussed the president's visit on several occasions, including the regular bi-weekly conference on the morning of November 22. Quote, Mr. Shanklin advised us, among other things, that in view of the president's visit to Dallas, that if anyone had any indication of any possibility of any acts of violence or any demonstrations against the president or vice president, to immediately notify the Secret Service and confirm it in writing. He had made the same statement about a week prior at another special conference which we had held. I don't recall the exact date. It was about a week prior." End quote. In fact, Hostie participated in transmitting to the Secret Service two pieces of information pertaining to the visit. Hostie testified that he did not know until the evening of Thursday, November 21, that there was to be a motorcade, however, and never realized that the motorcade would pass the Texas School Book Depository building. He testified that he did not read the newspaper story describing the motorcade route in detail, since he was interested only in the fact that the motorcade was coming up Main Street, quote, where maybe I could watch it if I had a chance, end quote. Even if he had recalled that Oswald's place of employment was on the president's route, Hostie testified 
that he would not have cited him to the Secret Service as a potential threat to the President. Hostie interpreted his instructions as requiring, quote, some indication that the person planned to take some action against the safety of the President of the United States or the Vice President, end quote. In his opinion, none of the information in the FBI files, Oswald's defection, his fair play for Cuba activities in New Orleans, his lies to Agent Quigley, his recent visit to Mexico City, indicated that Oswald was capable of violence. Hostie's initial reaction on hearing that Oswald was a suspect in the assassination was, quote, shock, complete surprise, end quote, because he had no reason to believe that Oswald, quote, was capable or potentially an assassin of the President of the United States, end quote. Shortly after Oswald was apprehended and identified, Hostie's superior sent him to observe the interrogation of Oswald. Hostie parked his car in the basement of police headquarters and there met an acquaintance, Lieutenant Jack Revel, of the Dallas Police Force. The two men disagree about the conversation which took place between them. They agree that Hostie told Revel that the FBI had known about Oswald and in particular of his presence in Dallas and his employment at the Texas School Book Depository Building. Revel testified that Hostie said also that the FBI had information that Oswald was, quote, capable of committing this assassination, end quote. According to Revel, Hostie indicated that he was going to tell this to Lieutenant Wells of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau. Revel promptly made a memorandum of this conversation in which the quoted statement appears. His secretary testified that she prepared such a report for him that afternoon, and Chief of Police Jesse E. Curry and District Attorney Henry M. Wade both testified that they saw it later that day. Hostie has unequivocally denied, first by affidavit and then in his testimony before the commission, that he ever said that Oswald was capable of violence or that he had any information suggesting this. The only witness to the conversation was Dallas Police Detective V.J. Bryan, who was accompanying Revel. Bryan did not hear Hostie make any statement concerning Oswald's capacity to be an assassin, but he did not hear the entire conversation because of the commotion at police headquarters and because he was not within hearing distance at all times. End of section 46. Recording by Linda Johnson.